Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today on The Grill, a bloke widely acknowledged as the driving force behind one of the seminal moments in the history of Australia's beef industry. That moment was the creation of a world standard, universally recognised measurement of eating quality for Australian beef. It was called Meat Standards Australia, or MSA. The man who had a vision to achieve that mighty goal was Rod Poggingham. Rod, welcome. It's an honour to have you as a guest on The Grill for Beef Central. Well, thank you, Kerry. I'm very pleased to be on it. Thank you. Rod, uh, I mentioned in my introduction, MSA was a seminal moment. Of course, it was many, many moments over a large number of years. And we'll go through that journey. But let's start with you, Rod. You were, as a relatively young bloke, one of the pioneer lot feeders in Australia. Let's uh, go to that. Uh, how did you get involved in lot feeding? Oh, I was, um, finished Duke Ag College back in seventy uh, uh, and Part of that, uh, I ended up going to University of Minnesota on an exchange program. We basically were stuck on a farm for nine months and then three months over winter at the university. But, um, and I sort of went there really because we had a drought at home and a wheat quarter and there wasn't much to do at home. We were a wheat and sheep family. And sitting up there in the ice and the snow in Minnesota, uh, Sort of change. It was about as different as you could ever get from Charlton. You know, the ground would freeze about October and not uh, thaw until March and maybe April. And then in that bit in the middle, everything was on overtime, really. They grew the same crops we did, only quicker. But the thing that got my attention really was that the cattle were totally unconnected to, uh, to the feed, <clears throat> in that you grew feed, you know, all through summer and you stuck it in a silo or you know, stuck it somewhere. And then what the cattle actually ate and therefore what they produced was an independent exercise. You know, so it became a ration. This bloke I was with was milk mill with 46 cows in an old stanchion barn, but they gave a hell of a lot of milk. And then they did it year-round. They had nothing whatsoever to do with seasons. And they had a few beef cattle out the back. So when I started thinking about wheat quotas, and then we couldn't grow wheat because we had a low one. I thought, well, stuff the wheat board, why don't we grow wheat fence to fence? and uh, feed cattle, and uh, so that was the genesis of sort of getting into lot feeding, but, and the sort of, you know, it was a few lucky coincidences where, you know, got on the way, but anyway, we, when I come home in uh, early 71, we uh, had a, a bloke in the US that was a partner in, uh, or the vice president of Dairy Queen, and I had this view that I'd turn wheat into milk and milk into Dairy Queen, because uh, this little town I was in in Minnesota, Starbuck, had a population of 600 and had a, a family-owned dairy queen store where they were, didn't even open the store. They went to Florida for four months a year and then six months of the year they made a really handy living. So, I, you know, being 21, as brash as they come, I'd been out to the dairy queen headquarters and sort of wanted the franchise uh, dairy queen for Australia and, I didn't get that, but I got the vice president. So I'd just been to Japan. He was working in Australia and Japan on China on Dairy Coin. There was this enormous demand for grain-fed beef. You know, why couldn't we produce it in Australia? I said, well, of course we could. You know, no problem. So Dairy Coin and milk for cattle took another, it was 81. We wished out of milk and cows. But the initial bit just got to be, well, yep, we can turn uh, grain into meat. 
uh, you know, it's, it's equivalent to, you know, US meat and sell it wherever you like. So it was 71. So the food lot itself, it sort of started like we were planning it until the through 71, but it actually was, you know, open and feeding cattle in 72, 73. So it was one of the very early ones. Probably the first of what you'd call an American style feedlot. There were some feeders in Victoria in the really early 70s, but it was sort of a bit more of a, you know, paddock and self feeder sort of arrangement. Rod, when, when you started to feed them, did you have any idea what and why you were feeding certain feeds to these um, to these feedlot cattle? No, not really. <laughs> I, just, I uh, bought a copy of the Nutrient Requirements of Beef Cattle at the university. It was a, a green book that had feed tables, and on the bloody then very long trip home, I bloody spent a lot of time with a pencil and paper because it was pre-calculated days, let alone computers. Um, Worked out how to formulate rations, and I formulated my Charlton rations for 20 years. Right. So the, you were just trying to get them fat, no matter how it happened? Yep. Yeah. Get them fin- well, I guess yeah, I'd, had a, I'd been following the Minnesota University meat judging team around all winter, and we could uh, the arrangement we had as foreign students, we didn't get any qualification for three months of university. We yeah. could sit in on any class that we wanted to for free, and I'd sat in on a lot of animal production stuff and meat science, which was a new thing to me. And it had a professor there, Gene Allen, who, you know, was a, one of those inspirational types. And I'd go up and flog him with questions and after yeah. any lecture and he'd go home for dinner. And that was good because I had 50 yeah. bucks a month out of a program to buy all my meals. So <laughs> we'd go home for dinner. So I'd spent a lot of time looking at meat judging and yeah. U.S. meat. But, but, so I knew a bit about it, but, but not, you know, so where I am, we got a US-style grain-fed product yeah. without, you know, so, but, the knowledge. But meat science in those days would have been in its infancy. And in those days, what existed here in Australia in terms of, uh, can I use the word broad term, quality control for our retail beef industry at the time in terms of tenderness and taste? Was there anything? At that stage, it was really... Really basic, like it was the old Australian meat board, and we basically had you know first quality, second quality, third quality, and that was whatever you wanted to call it. So, you know, first quality in the middle of spring was probably higher than first quality in the middle of winter, and uh, you know, it was pre Osmate, uh, you know, so pre any sort of well, really developed description language. Um, so yeah, it was a different era, yeah. Uh, look, I, I'm anxious to hear the story, and I'm and for this, I'm let me hand over to a journo who followed you through the extraordinary journey to MSA. Rod, here's the CEO of Beef Central, John Condon. Take it away, John. Yeah, morning, Rod. It's uh, nice to hear from you. Yeah, you too, John. I think everybody recognises your great contribution to the um, evolution of MSA, if you like, over the last 25 years. And I should mention that next year is being tagged as the 25th anniversary of of MSA. So it is another significant milestone. I mean, we're now up to 3.25 million head of cattle graded last year under the MSA program. So there'd be a lot of our listeners who aren't familiar with that that very early time, the pioneering stage that the program went through. So I'm keen to just sort of start talking in the in my first few questions just around how the program evolved. I seem to recollect initially that there was a couple of seminal events where some pretty poor quality meat was served up to people involved in the beef industry and it became a bit of a call to action. Do, do you have that sort of recollection of the 
growing interest in developing something which was yeah. going to project, iron out the kinks in the beef industry? It happened a bit before that, but the seminal event was the initial beef event at Rocky, as, <laughs> as I recall it, yeah, where there was some terrible beef served to some pretty influential uh, very cattle industry <laughs> people, and that certainly cemented it. But I think the genesis rightly belongs with an alpha. Uh, like you had uh, purple strip branding in Queensland in 1971, which was, you know, Dougal Cameron and Robin Hart and uh, a couple of others had pushed, and Alpha itself, you know, had been pushing for grading for a long way, believed in grading. Now, that was original purple strip browning. You had John Carter in New South Wales with his gold strip around, and uh, sort of, well, we had an era when we started, a number of us sort of started feed on the early one, sort of pre the crash, and that was all, you know. We was confident as buggery, but we wanted grade. And then, of course, the crash on nearly all of us out. And that post-crash period uh, really started to look serious about Alpha needing a brand. And uh, the I we had this, we had, I think, I don't know, it felt like every day, but probably once a month for about five years, I think, we'd have a meeting at, at, uh, in, uh, at QMA in Brisbane or in New South Wales, the John Carter, and we have this debate about standards, and we all knew what we were doing, and we knew lot-fed beef was good and best, and we definitely wanted to brand it, you know, so we wanted our purple brand, of course, because they were state-controlled. There was always this issue of who said it. We'd have this endless bloody debate. There'd be two butchers there, and they'd earnestly argue that two mil of fat was enough, or they'd okay to go to four teeth, and we'd say, no, 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 we need at least six mil of fat, and they've got to be 70 days on feed, and they should be zero teeth, and they go round and round and round, and what should meat colour be? And actual fact, none of us bloody knew. We all thought we did. So the genesis was in that sort of strip branding bit. And then a little later, Alpha actually got some money, which was a change. Uh, you know, we got a grant from our YB scrap, but basically federal government, to start looking at branding. And, you know, we sort of come up with a, a then pretty controversial idea, I guess, you actually test consume is going to beat the meat and prove what they, prove what they thought. Now, why the hell we didn't do that for the 50 years before has got me stuffed. Time for a break, a message from our sponsors. Our guest today, Rod Palkingholm, is the architect of Meat Standards Australia. Back in a moment. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinoguard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your weaners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinoguard. Available from your local vet today. For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian agriculture. You're back on the grill with Beef Central. Our guest today, Rod Porkinghorn. He is one of the founders, the driving force behind the creation of Meat Standards Australia, or MSA as it's called. 
Where do you think that genesis of that idea of the um, the consumer taste panel test originally came from? Because definitely the- come from Alison. I, I yeah. got a contract under this side. I'd sold the feedlot uh, to Coles and I'd gone down to Gibson to raise cattle and, and I thought I was going to enjoy a bloody relaxed life here with breeding cattle and fattening them and having fun. And uh, Kevin Robertson, Bob Keams, cornered me in a bloody restaurant in Potts Point. And I was, look, we've just got this little job, we've got this money from Ribies, can you, you've bloody sold your feedlots, you've got time, can you develop a business plan? And uh, <laughs> that's what I did. But part of that was, well, you know, we know grain-fed beef's wonderful. We all knew that. But the 60-day stuff might be different than the 300-day stuff. You know, the Japanese-type market versus domestic. So I said, well, is it one brand or two brands? And the best way to test that, maybe we'll try it on consumers. And uh, that was what we did. And, uh, you know, and actually I flew around Australia to five different plants. Uh, you now I which plant. I think we're out at Oakey and... Uh, Mudgy in New South and the Gilberts in town Victoria, but, you know, we based in Walter, I think. So we collected, we just went in and we collected grain fed strip loins that had uh, one marbling or three marbling. And uh, we we're going to cook them as grills, age them five and 21 days and, and eat them, which we did. And uh, as well as eating them, we also prepared a plate, basically a three by three sort of his nine steaks. But we had uh, zero, one on three marbling or something, and then we had, you know, no, like basically zero fat on the outside, you know, five or six mil and ten, because uh, at that point, AMLC had been formed, and you know, we were off on this great adventure of advertising lean, 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 lean. And we'd have an alpha meeting hidden away in the bowels of the building because we weren't supposed to be there, and it had been agreed by the old meat board that. Australia would do grass-fed and the US would do grain-fed and we wouldn't compete. Uh, so, you know, back in the last days of the AMLC, or before AMLC, sorry, or meat board, you'd sneak in to see, uh, see someone in, in, the, uh, in the building and they'd sort of look up and down the corridor and whisk in and shut the door, you know, because Alpha was sort of not viewed as a viable, <laughs> viable industry for live feeding. But, but in, the, in this original trial where we had these nine bits, so consumers come in and they ate, ate the meat, which wasn't all that well controlled, but basically ate it. And then after they'd eaten it, we got on to school, you know, what did you think would eat the best? And uh, they got it exactly wrong. So we had a theory that you know, maybe marbling didn't matter so much, it was excess fat. So if we had a heavily marbled bit of meat and trimmed it tightly, you know, that might get rid of the fat problem. And what we found is that any fat on the outside, any marbling at all, I just said it would eat terribly. And if it was the other way around, you know, it would eat wonderfully. So this super lean, no marbled meat would be what they believe would be best. Now, of course, when they ate it, we got exactly the opposite result. So we got uh, this, you know, the stuff that was highly marbled had lots of fat scored higher and the stuff that uh, had no fat scored terribly. So It sounds like those very early results indicated that simply adopting a USDA-type model wasn't going to work for Australia because of the diversity of product we produce. Um, it wasn't the one-size-fits-all process, you know. They, it, it, yeah, we, we didn't believe that at the time, but, yeah, it, it probably should have with hindsight. Uh, Alpha itself was still pretty heavily committed to, you know, we should use U.S. spraying, and, of course, John Carter was, uh, uh, you know, continual advocate of that uh, everywhere he went. And we thought it would work. It was later on when we started testing 
like actual got the consumer testing really sorted out that we just found out every cup is different. So apart from anything else, uh, there's pointless trying to grade a carcass. And we, when we got the formal bit of the EQA, which is just pre-MSA, uh, we started to get a lot tighter on what we wanted and what the objectives were. Really, it was a presumption that our meat was good. And I guess the other thing that uh, came out of that very early work was we got the fright of our life because it wasn't all good. And now we had meat from five different abattoirs that we thought we graded on what were then the new Osmeat standard. You know, so we had dentition and fat colour, meat colour. Um, everything was in that language, and we'd specified what we knew would be best. And you know. Stuff that we picked as being identical and ter- and were identical in terms of those traits, ate incredibly differently from extremely bad to extremely good. Uh, you know, so there was this abattoir effect. So that set us back a bit. You know, and we actually got some money then out of uh, MRC, which is John Webster's program manager. So we got a decent amount of money and did it a lot more thoroughly. And we had a. I don't know, the next round of that sort of reporting thing on branding for Alpha was uh, one you need two brands, the marbled one that people only see cooked that you put to a restaurant, gourmet choice, and the leaner one for domestic, uh, which is you know, sort of going to be leaner and look all right for a domestic brand. And But then on our testing, it's saying that we've got this variation that we can't explain. You know, can't explain it with tradition. They already standard that to what became called pathways. And Steelers to say, well, there must be things here that are having an impact that we can't see when we write it, or not with Osmate language. So we got money with John, and we Alpha set up a trial with Woolworths at Ipswich Abattoir, and we said, okay, here's a, a pathway. You know, you've got to have less than 50% bosinicus. Cattle have got to come direct to kill. At uh, that time, Syro were heavily promoting basically that electrical stimulation solved everything. We didn't have a a problem with cattle, any old cattle would be fine, but you know, if you stimulated them, if you didn't, you can get cows short. And this was it. So, we'd insisted that uh, they be stimulated. And in fact, the trial bought a stimulator and stalled it at Ipswich uh, to make sure we could do it right. So, we had all these sort of preconditions, and then we added our carcass stuff, you know, they had to be you know, this much fat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, young Jason Strong, who's just back from Michigan, got hired as the uh, Initial grader, and over something like six months, we graded, I think it was around 50,000 cattle, so it wasn't a small, I was like 25,000 cattle, and 2,500 of them actually got in to our standards. So, you know, we'd set a really high, you know, 22,591 bodies that Jason graded, and also measured with the virus scan, which was very new at that time, um, 2,570, he sort of declared were tender choice and Woolworths had six stores that only got the stuff that was uh, branded for tender choice and six other stores which only got the other and a century mob called uh, Smart trotted around and randomly bought uh, strip line steaks and rump steaks from those stores and put the century test and uh, we got the century test results and Found there was no difference whatsoever. In fact, the average was slightly higher than the stuff we hadn't graded, maybe point one or something. And uh, we repeated that, thinking, well, maybe you get unlucky, you know, it's only a few consumers. And we got the same answer. So we got to an absolute crisis point about then of, you know, 
is, is it actually not possible to, to grow, particularly the leaner product, the typical Australian product? I guess meat just vary and there's nothing you could do about it. And uh, I sort of had a pretty hard look at actually stopping the trial work. That's uh, just uh, can't be done, you know. Grading's all about what it looks like and uh, we couldn't do anything about it. Um, you know, then I said, well, you know, the other possibility is, is something in the abattoir effect and we uh, we sort of uh, sort of had a hard look at what we'd done at Ipswich. They had a pretty shitty old chiller at the time, you know, uh, wooden posts and, you know, cracked floors and spider webs around the rails and all that sort of stuff, you know, very different to the day's sort of standards. And they had a brand new one further down the hill, new chiller, whatever you'd like. So we'd insisted that these cattle that were going into the tender storage program were always chilled in this other chiller. And we'd insisted on ten, on the uh, uh, electrical stim. So I said, oh, well, we'll just give it one last shot. You know, there's, uh, we actually did a trial where we put you know, one side of each carcass in each chiller and we stimulated and didn't stimulate. So we had stim with the old chiller, stim with the new chiller, no stim with both. And lo and behold, the uh, stim of the new chiller had terrible meat and no stim. And that chiller was much better than stim, and then the old chiller was all about the same. It was just a straight-out pH issue of the time. You, know, you stim and then had uh, took a long time to get a body down to this new chiller, so it was very hot with stimulation, pushed it in the heat shortly. And, uh, and we brought that stuff and discussed it with Drew Ferguson and Tomo, which was just at the start of the original CRC, and they sort of raised their eyebrows a bit, and then we designed a new trial where we had cattle there where we actually stripped the fat off some lines, and we wrapped others in bubble wrap, so they're all in this new chiller, but we controlled how much fat was there and stem and no stem, and we got very much the same results. So that was the start of sort of, well, it was an app window issue, you know, you've got to look at pH, and the stem is good sometimes, and it's detrimental other times, you know, so it's not just do this, do that. So that was fundamental in sort of saying, oh, there is a way forward here, you know, but it has to include processing criteria as well as these, you know, pre-kill criteria we'd put in for sort of, you know, animal supply, if you like, not mixing direct consignment, all those sort of issues. Yes, they could be having an impact, but at least in that trial, the big impact was coming out of chewing. So, Rod, just so I understand it, uh, the notion that, Everybody along the supply chain has a uh, responsibility and has a, makes a contribution towards the ultimate eating quality of the carcass. Was it widely accepted at the time, or was it seen as a distraction that it was up to the processes to look after tenderness? I mean, how well received was that concept across the broader industry? Do you think? In the background, it probably made sense. So of course it is, but how important is it? The mm. processor and Probably wasn't so much a pushback about that as, as being commodity trading. Like you never get paid for good stuff, or if you identify the good stuff, you'll get the shit kicked out on the bad stuff. So, you know, you'll never get enough money to pay for quality, was almost the bottom line. Like yep. this is a trading deal and it's always price. And, the, and probably a perception that in these things didn't make all that much difference. They already knew what a cow was and cow beef wouldn't be as good as, you know, whatever else. Uh, but it wasn't thought to be that critical. And it was certainly this the giant 
trend, trying transition that we've made, no one else has, I guess, is what a carcass looks like isn't what it acts like. And every other system on earth is based on what this carcass looks like. Yep. And you can sort carcass till it's absolutely lovely. You know, here there's one similar weight, sex, meat colour, fat colour, you know. People are really proud of yourself. They just look lovely. And when they go on a box, the cuts look lovely. But those same cuts in the box can range by 50, 60 points out of 100 in terms of eating quality. And that's the bit that's fundamental with, uh, with MSA, I think. Yep. So you're, you're, and I mean, no one else, most other places, very little actual measurement of the difference. There might be some scientific stuff with Warner Brussels and whatever, but it's using a consumer off the street to actually tell you what was good and what was bad. I mean, we thought about that for over 12 months here with our own scientists. Yep. You know, like, could you use consumers? And consensus really was you couldn't. Now, that bloody varied, you just get so much noise, you never make sense of it. You know, so we should use a train panel or the Warner Bratzler or whatever, you know, some nice technical, you know, objective measure would give it to us. Um, and that, that was a genuine belief, you know, it wasn't, this is really what they believed. And when we started to get into it, you know, they were right. You know, the way century testing was done was very well. This, mob that you know, MRC had this relationship with a century organisation and they were sort of gods <coughs> talking about consumers being right but you know we would go out to look at a taste test and there'd be five barbecues at the back of a pub in Brisbane somewhere and people rounded up off the street to eat meat but you'd go look at them and of course barbecue's a barbecue and you put a temp cage on it and it's 190 degrees in this corner and it's 240 in the middle and it's something else over there and the meat had been cut up, so it was, you know, varying thickness, uh, you know, and it's scattered across. And the people, of course, you get people in there that like meat well done, being Brisbane, and getting it rare, and people that like it rare that are getting it well done. And all that creates just enormous noise, you know. So did they mark this bit down because they got it cooked somewhere they didn't like it, or did they mark it down because it was actually worse? So those issues are inherently in there, and how consumer testing was normally done. And train panel stuff, of course, much more precise. But we started doing a lot of work to say, well, what are the same bits of meat? What do the train panel say? What do the consumers say? And then what did the Warner Bradshaw say? And the correlation was absolutely pathetic, like virtually no correlation at all that you could rely on. And this is just testing bloody strip lines. Now, that sort of you know, gets you a bit nervous, but we're saying, well, we need to go off consumers because that's they've got a wallet at least. You know, the train panel doesn't. And that, that train panel says this is hard or this is soft or something like that, not, uh, you know, this is good. Uh, and the Warner Bratz, we didn't find very good at all. And even if it was perfect, it would only talk about tenants, not flavour and other attributes. So we were going down that track and as it happened the century organisation that had been doing all this work decided they'd start a train panel and they'd been off to MRC to get some money to help train up a train panel because it'd be more efficient and all the rest of it and uh, you know, I got this in and, and afterwards sort of started the trial and that slipped on we're also using the Sino train panel you know to see how good two train panels were anyway I got a heap of data printed it off at Charlton drove to Melbourne on the plane on the way up to Sydney and meeting with MRC, I've got these sheets and I've got three sets of results. And uh, 
you know, I turned the first page, I saw our panels off of the ferries, you know, no relationship at all. And this other panel, I said, oh, the first sheet, they got seven out of seven right. By the time I get to a sample 120, they're all in the same order. So they got perfect correlation. Not the same score, but in the same order. By then, it's, uh, you know, you're smelling a big dead fish here somewhere. Like, this can't be right. And uh, you know, it took about three months where I actually got into it and got the data. I got the original test sheets, but I you know, found a bit of scuttlebutt and said, well, you know, someone fiddled these numbers, uh, <laughs> which uh, didn't do much for confidence. But anyway, that's how it was. And I took it to, you know, I took it back to MRC and the, the mob that had done it. Oh, no, no, that's just not right. You just don't understand stats, boy. You farmers, you know. Just don't understand real statistics. Uh, that was true. We didn't. <laughs> we took it off to three different statisticians. Uh, one was the Department of Agriculture in Melbourne, and he said, "Oh, yeah, most unusual, you know, very, very unlikely." And we took it to the other mob's own statistician. He says, "Yes, it's quite, you know, quite unusual." And I took it to Ray Watson at Melbourne Uni, who was professor of stats there, who maths and stats, and We've got this pile of data, and you know, we're wobbling, rambling on about you know, how we did this and did that and what we were worried about. And he just runs his hand down the bloody page and says, Oh, who's adjusted these data? You know, just like that. <laughs> no brief, no analysis, no anything, just eyeball. Uh, anyway, we uh, you know, took him up to Sydney and said, Well, here's a statistician. And he says, This data is adjusted, or these data are adjusted. And, uh, they say, oh, you want to be careful, right? You know, someone might say, and he says, so what? They've cheated. <laughs> yeah. As simple as that. And from that point, we got um, really serious. It's been a how did you century test. And I think if that hadn't happened, we probably would never have got there because the way century testing was done was just not precise enough. You know, that many variables, you know, how it was called, when the consumers were screened, what thickness it was, all those things generate enormous noise. So, one of the, I guess, one of the earliest fundamental decisions is critical. And we decided that actually whatever a consumer said was right. So a consumer answer would drive what we did in grading, not not our opinion. That was critical. And the second one was sort out the bloody protocols. And uh, so after that point, I had a bloody horse come over and bust my pelvis. So I was lying in a bed on Pethodine there for about a week. And... Uh, in that time, we devised a questionnaire. It was 20-odd pages, 70-odd questions. You know, okay, how many consumers do you need to use you know, to get a test? You know, what are boxes? You know, two, four, ten, whatever, you know, other comment. You know, do you need to be in a lab or can you do it in a community area? You know, do you use boots? Do you score on line scales or five-point scale? You know, everything we could bloody think of, uh, and we sent that questionnaire out for everyone we knew was involved in consumer testing. So, you know, Rhonda Miller in the US, uh, people in London, we got all the replies back and you know, went through it and said, okay, well, everyone's agreed on, you know, these 10 points, these 10 are contentious. And we, uh, the first trip out of hospital on crutches was to go to Brisbane to the old quest. And we uh, had all the you know, local scientists there and literally sort of basically shut the door and said no one's leaving here until we've got a consensus, you know. <laughs> These are the issues and that became the NSA protocols. And, you know, from that point forward, 
suddenly we did consumer tests and then shit, the results of consistent tests this meet this week in Brisbane and next week in Sydney or in a different suburb, different people, and guess what? They put them all in the same order, you know, and they're about the same number of points of power. So, 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 Rod, you know, that whole notion of, uh, of of having having the consumer as being the ultimate arbiter, this would have been a little unsettling, I suspect, for some in the scientific community at that time, would it? Oh, totally. Yeah, they yeah. didn't. Well, basically, yeah, a large number of them thought it was impossible. Uh, so and I do again, remember that um, one of the early notions that the MSA committee had, and you would have been a part of all this, was the the concept of the empty chair, representing yep. the consumer out there in you know consumer land, whether that be in Australia or Japan or yep. wherever else. But um, I mean, was that something that you know uh, uh, have trying try to always take the consumer's perspective into account? Was that a hard sell? Uh- we were lucky to had Phil Morley, who then was in charge of Woolies Meat, mm. and Phil brought that over from Woolies. So when they were having meetings, they had this empty chair, and Webster was sharp enough to pick it up, and we adopted it. But it, and we used to literally have the empty chair at every meeting of the Pathways meeting, and we do it again even now when I remember it, because it's the ultimate point. You know, if you get to a, here's a decision, and it's a line ball particularly, you know, what would the empty chair say? And that got to be really critical later on when we had some really tough, you know, industry pushback. Uh, I think in a way we were lucky in that late 80s, early 90s period, you know. If you looked at any beef consumption graph and pricing graph, you th- you could see you were gone. I mean, the graph just kept going down until the industry disappeared. So there was enough desperation there for producers particularly to say, yeah, we'll do whatever it takes, basically. We'll sign off on this idea that, you know, because we then had consumer data that showed they pick it, but basically we got an industry right. decision, really. The old EQA. Right, can I just, uh, can I just uh, put forward some numbers here which I thought are fascinating about the consumer testing and how important it was, or, or still is. 800,000 tests in the, in the uh, production of MSA, 800,000 tests over 11 countries, and, and that included 114,000 consumers. 800,000. Now it's over 200,000. 800,000. Yeah, it's amazing. Now it's over 200,000 consumers. Wow. So, you know, that, and that's why it's such a powerful set of data. The other, the other bit that's often missed, it's equally critical and, and uh, not entirely accidental, but most like of brilliance is this hasn't been run as separate experiments. You know, the classic scientific issue, you know, it's okay, I have an experiment, I keep it relatively simple a lot of the time and I test something and then in the old days, of course, we went back in the filing cabinet and it's our little little folder and that was trial X and then I did another one about something else. From MSA, for start, we actually had computers by then, we we started like Excel spreadsheets and we kept adding trials, you know, so... We still have a single database in Oz Blue that contains every bit of meat that's been eaten since 1993. And it, originally it had less data, but you know, it was this sort of animal, it was this carcass weight, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Later on, we had things like HGP, as we found they were important, but all that's been measured consistently for well, nearly 30 years now, you know, and very close to 30 years. So, We've now got this phenomenal set of data where marbling means marbling. 
you know, ossification means ossification, dentition means dentition. Uh, we're often going to find, you know, we can read the literature and Gary Smith did a trial on tender stretch and, you know, tender stretch worked. But you say, okay, it worked, but, you know, what's, what's the quantity? You know, how much, how, what would you do with the scores? And someone else has done a different trial and also says it works. But do you allow five points, 10 points, 20 points? And worse yet, does it interact? And, we, and of course it does in that case, you know, depending on how you hang up the tennis, you know, the ageing effect is different. So how much do they age, you know, <clears throat> becomes something you've got to quantify. Now, because we've got this data set, and we always maintain sort of one huge database that's well linked to a fair bit of overseas stuff, some of which we've joined MSA projects and some of which are fully independent projects but run on MSA protocol, we've suddenly got is this phenomenal database of everything we know about that animal carcass and treatments. And there's some consumer schools that have taken under identical protocols. So, you know, whether that and that started off as grills and only one cut, strip loin, and now it's uh, something like 11 different cooking methods and 87 different muscles. Um, but it sits there and it's relatable. So that, that's been a they talk about big data often and now of course, you know, they you know, going through that automatically in AI and coming up with answers. Well to run AI you need joint data and, and that's what we've ended up with. Rod, I should mention, you know, you personally and, and your partner Judy, who I'm assuming is still working with you in this space, but you've 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 been responsible for the overwhelming majority of, of all this taste panel testing work that's been carried out over the last thirty years. Are you still active in it? Are you still doing this today? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you keep doing what is it banging your head on the walls? I suppose the question fun, comes, do we ever get to a point where we've literally exhausted the permutations of which there are many you know in terms of testing or or do you think testing will go on indefinitely given the arrival of new elements you know we've seen the introduction of of things like wagyu into the program are there always going to be new elements that require better understanding about the impact on tenderness and eating quality yeah there are the uh, uh, i guess the the other database, you know, when we load that data, every line in that database comes from 10 different consumers. So there's also a consumer database that's 10 times bigger. So the analysis on that are things like how important is tenderness relative to flavour, yeah. you know, relative to overall satisfaction, relative to juiciness. So that becomes, you know, we monitor that not every day, but periodically. You know, that, that can be different either for a different cooking method. You know, we get to shabby shabby is 1.6 mil thick and just waves through a bit of hot water, you know. Uh, Flavour is pretty important in that, 10 and it's less so, you know, which you expect relative to a steak. But that's looked at by cooking method and it's looked at by country because, you know, our Japanese consumers different, that sort of thing. And periodically, we look at it. Now, we had an adjustment a few years ago now, but initially... Uh, when Roy Watson came up with his MQ4 score, it was 40% tenderness and 30, uh, 20% flavour and 30 overall on 30. Now we've we adjusted that to up flavour to where it was equal to tenderness. And that's you know, that's a result of that consumer work showing there'd been a bit of a shift. Probably as the meat on average got a bit better flavour. I was going to say, is that partly because MSA has more or less, you know, solved a lot of the riddles to do with tenderness and the, and the contributing factors? 
it's certainly contributing. And the other one, I mean, not that we're using it that well, but when you get into it, this three-star, four-star, five-star, we also look at that. You know, if you typically, if you've got a bit of meat that's on the borderline between unsatisfactory and just good enough, you know, tenderness is fairly important. Almost, you know, usually, you know, at the top. If you go out to where we're talking about five-star, you know, this is the difference between better than every day and, you know, perfect premium, you know, flavour weights in fairly heavily. So we look at those breaks as well. That's sort of part of the process. So, so uh, you, just you, know, the, you just referenced the the SAR system, three, four, five-star with MSA, which was absolutely a fundamental part of the system in its original format, but it, <coughs> it sort of yep. disappeared out of the MSA system over time. Was that simply because things like the index came in that sort of was a better solution and a more specific solution? Or why didn't the industry persevere with the STAR system, do you think? Well, it goes back, it's, you know, industry attitude, really. The the alpha and probably the, or maybe parts of the original committee, certainly the producer end, yeah. had in mind a grading system like US, uh, you know, three-star, four-star, five-star, rather than in a select, uh, choice and prime, but the same sort of idea and a universal system. So you could, you know, any, you could compare meat anywhere. And there was huge retailer pushback on exactly that point. You know, cold meat can't be like Woolworths meat. Mm. Uh, you know, we all, you know, that, that, that was a sort of issue. You know, we had to have our own brands. So it was pushed for a fair while, but, and then we also we used to only grade three, four, five, and the, un- but the underlying score is between zero and 100. So, you know, those cutoffs we look at periodically too, but, you know, anything under 45.5 is ungraded. Yep. Anything between there and 63 and a half is a three-star and so on. So, uh, but that score exists in, you know, continuous stuff. So where we get to now, and originally, of course, we had bone group, so that was also set. You know, an animal that had and I guess this all is after this jump from testing just a strip line and testing more muscles. But really, you know, for a carcass to <clears throat> get a boning group, you know, boning group 18, only a tenderloin passed, and it had to be three-star. Boning group one, there'd be something like 10 muscles in there, and they all had to be go, you know, above certain points. Like they, you could have a three-star um, Rump and a four-star key roll and a five-star tender or something, but it had every cut had to meet a minimum, and then it become a boning grip, whatever. So unfortunately, that falls to bits when you've got hormones and brahmins involved in that relationships of muscles are not good enough to have, in effect, a fixed boning grip. It, it's nice system, and everybody under, could understand it. And an eighteen in Victoria is the same as an eighteen in Queensland, but a fallout of cattle missing. Uh, because a different cut was too great. So the PBR system that's now in basically lets a processor or a retailer or whoever can set their own score. I mean, 40, uh, 45 and a half still a fail, but above that I can say, look, I've got a premium brand here, and even though the cutoff for uh, 77, I want to make it 80 or 60 if you want to. You know, so processor X or retailer X can have their you know premium offer. There's something different to five, so it could be 4.6 star up, or could be 5.2 if you like up, and you can have you know different different categories in there. You can split three star, which is probably a pretty useful one. You know, so this is meat that's 
okay, if you like. Consumers said it's satisfactory, but it's just satisfactory. And the top half of three-star, you know, is decidedly something better, but not four-star. But, you know, you could have a brand that's, you know, above 3.5-star in the old language, and maybe it runs up into 4.2. So time is time is sort of slipping away from us a little bit, but there's a couple of other questions I've got, uh, Rod. We reflect on 25 years now, or the best part of of grading for under MSA, and where we're up to today with three and a quarter million cattle being graded. But there'll be a lot of people who may not be aware that it wasn't an overnight success, was it? By any means, the early the early years of MSA absolutely struggled for uptake. None of the big processors used it. Neither of the major supermarket groups used it. How close did MSA come, do you think, to being put on the shelf as a a great concept, but one which commercially... Uh, the industry didn't have the appetite to 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 adopt. Was it under oh, risk? Do you think it was under risk at any particular point? Not at a producer level. Very definitely at processor level. And without John Webster and and probably David Crombie, could well have happened. You know that the, the one of the changes that was fundamental that didn't change attitude, but it changed capability, was going from pathways to models. Uh, what we found, and a pathway similar to a retailer specification in Europe or anywhere else, you know, one, I mean, if you go to Waitrose, it's only Herbert's Angus, they've all got to be male, you know, they've got to be under 18 months, you've got to, got to, got to, got to. Yep. And what we found with a pathway, we could, we could develop a set of steps that achieved that for one muscle, you know, for a strip. And what you found was that when you went and ate them, you know, the ones that failed, about half of them were just as good. Because, you know, they had to have minimum marbling, but, you know, these, so they failed a bit on marbling, but they had much lower offs or something. You know, things offset. So if you say, you've got to jump every one of these hurdles, the cattle get that through, they're sure as hell good. But the ones, of the ones that fall out, some clear this hurdle by, you know, three feet and just click the top of the next one, and the two things offset. So it meant that if you set the standards high enough and really deliver for a consumer, you file a lot of good meat. And that, of course, is commercial anathema. And if you set them sloppy enough to get an acceptable commercial amount getting in, the consumer liability goes off. You let too many failures in. Uh, and Ray Watson come up with uh, the original model that solved that problem. Suddenly, you know, you know, it calculates the difference. So yeah. it's sort of, I've got 50 points of this cut, but it's had a hormone drop back to 45, but I aged a long time, you know, add 10, et cetera. This is the net result. And that made, that made MSA commercially viable. In that yep. Nearly all the good, you know, 90% of the very good cattle got in and very few of the failures and vice versa. So and, that, that was the fun mill. Do you think that, that was the catalyst that sort of, that saw the major processes uh, uh, embrace the system and, um, no, and no, then start no, to build no, momentum? No, or, or? Fundamentally, that, that happened, but I don't think they, uh, <laughs> I don't know that they even understood or recognised it. I think what they, Recognised was Terry Nolan suddenly getting premium for his yeah, meat. Yeah. <laughs> so those and early pioneers a, like Terry, who did jump in, sort of yep. provided a little bit of um, uh, incentive, if you like, in the sense that the sort of outcomes he was getting and the and the and the yeah. the, 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 the pull through he was getting for his product probably encouraged others to have a go. Yeah, it most definitely did. I mean, Terry, I think, on some of the old MRC work, had a real issue with his meat. And then he changed his brown content, he changed his HGP, he went to tender stretch, 
in other words, adopted, you know, as the as the data come in and they could see it and believe it, you know, you just adopted, 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 and you know, they suddenly had a premium product that was pulling, you know, very good money in food service rather than one that was pretty on the nose. So he certainly caused it. The other one that we always had this issue with the two big supermarkets that, yes, we'll get into MSA, but as long as our meat's right, they had a belief, genuine belief, that uh, export rumps were the problem and their meat was spot on. And, you know, it was getting dragged, everyone was getting dragged down in price by these export rumps. And uh, so theirs was right. And then we went and did a test in Brisbane where we bought commercial product and um, eight out of 10 filed. You know, so it wasn't what Even at the supermarket level, there were still issues with tenderness and performance. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, the meat looked good, the carrots looked the same, same old thing, you know. So where do you, where, where, from, where do you think, um, given the, the, the length and the breadth of, uh, of, of the consumer work that's, uh, that's taken place, what are the next big objectives for MSA, in your opinion, Rod, in this space? I mean, are there frontiers we haven't really explored yet that we need to examine and potentially, you know, Im- embed within the system? What, what, what's, the, what's the next sort of five to ten years? Oh, well, there's two levels. One, one is just you, and if you use the information we've got, it'd be uh, a long way ahead. Like mm. there's a, you know, it, basically there's a lot more info and knowledge in MSA than what's being applied. You know, because people just say, oh, "I'm not going to bother with MSA topsoil or whatever it is." Uh, you know, it's just a commodity product. So there's a bit of that. Or I insist on some of my rumps as grills, uh, but they're actually better as roasts. Well, I don't age, you know. So there's some of that sort of stuff, but. Uh, the fundamental bits now, I think, are uh, certainly understanding flavour better. Uh, I mean, flavour, I saw an article you pushed a couple of weeks ago about MSA needs to look at flavour. Well, MSA has been looking at flavour since 1991. Uh, but, but being able to predict flavour accurately, I mean, we've got where we've got, but what's this muscle that we test it, you know, so it's real... And we don't have to understand why initially. We just say, well, there's an effect here and it's repeatable, so we put it in our model. But that means if you've got a new muscle, you start from scratch. So it's fairly laborious. What we need to, we've got to get back a bit deeper into some of the muscle biochemistry and things like pH and classic, where, you know, everything on the carcass gets thrown out of the pH of 5.71. Well, you know, different muscles have got different pHs and pH does different things. When we kill an animal, here's a carcass, you've got different sorts of muscles. You know, they've got different fatty acid profiles, they've got different amino acid profiles, they've got different uh, connective tissue and all the rest of it. And then there's a period when it, it goes through a transition. So you've got that early, you know, first critical 24 hours where pH is changing, temps change, and then over let's say the two weeks that it's being aged in backpack, everything's changing, you know, so the amino acids are breaking down into something, the fatty acids are breaking down, the connective tissue is breaking down, and you've got this sort of broth, if you like, and then you go on heat, you know, and that becomes a score. Now, all these things at that point are precursors to flavour. So I think, I believe, flavour chemistry, and they've done a fair bit of it in Ireland with... uh, Different meat. I'm convinced that that'll tell us a whole lot more. It's not the flavour itself, but the flavour chemistry will sort of like we get this sort of flavour reaction when pH is at this muscle. You know, so, so it won't, won't be a sort of oh, it's five seven. It'll be you now what what pH and out of that 
will come a much better understanding of why we get these results. To some extent, tenderness, although tenderness is pretty well big, but clove is not, and it's at least as important. So I think we need to take a step back. We need some bodies here that are, you know, normal, so 5, 5 pH, some that are sort of 5, 9 to 6, some that are maybe 6, 1 to 6, 3, and we take 5 or 6 sort of very different type muscles yeah. and really do, and, and that's what Pathways is looking at too. That, I'm sure, will leapfrog us. Um, okay. The other one, of course, is MSO has always been set on, like, so a consumer buys this meat, takes it home and cooks it in their kitchen. You know, and, and it's got a bit of safety valve around it to try and make sure, you know, if you cook it. And what we found, and we tested meat in Ireland that's well done versus medium, and in France, rare versus medium, because that's what they, you know, all our consumers want. We found the order stacks up. You know, people that like it rare and eat it rare score it the same or very similar as people that like it medium cook it medium. So, what happens at home, not that everyone gets the same result, but they consistently bugger it up in the same way, probably. So, you know, the best chef in Australia will get a much better result, but you'll still get a five-point difference or whatever it is. Yep. So okay. that's sitting there. What we haven't got into in any depth is, uh, okay, I'm not a home kitchen. You know, I'm now an industrial place where yep. I've got time controlled ovens, etc. Et Probably ovens and all sorts of other technologies that might not be applicable in a home yeah, sort of cooking environment. We've done it. Like we've done a fair bit of enhancement work uh, with uh, the old traditional phosphates and also dead natural clean label products, and there's no doubt we can take meat that's you know failing in its own lifted into at least mid three star. So scope to sort of apply that to second what I now call secondary cuts and commodities mm. to turn them into much different eating experiences. I think is massive. And, you know, ideally, that are the uh, value out specifying I want PR oyster blades, you should say I want meat here that I want to die. Yep. And I want the answer to be 70 points or you know, 60 to 70 or something. And that could be 50 different muscles of different classes of cattle with different processing, but you get a really consistent and a ready meal. So based on oh, a set of purpo- uh, suitability for purpose rather than muscle cut and that sort of thing. And it's yeah, certainly uh, something that's been your model. vision for a very long time, uh, right back to your yep. retailing days. So, Rod, I've just got a, one last question before I pass back to Kerry, and that is uh, in terms of, you know, the way you've described it to me, it sounds like there's still a lot of work to be done in the MS space, MSA space, particularly in the consumer panel work area. Is there a risk of MSA not being adequately funded for this type of work going forward in the sense that there's a sort of a sense that uh, we've already done a lot of the work and we're getting less bang for our buck out of out of R&D and, and, and the sensory work with MSA. Do, does the industry run the risk of not continuing to support it financially as much as it needs? I have to say, yes. That is, it's certainly doing less than it could and I think should. But, you know, MLA... Your industry set the priorities, of course, and, uh, you know, sustainability is no doubt it's important uh, where that right balance is, but it's certainly a major body of work that needs to happen. I mean, the other two big ones are cattle and distress. At the minute, MSA has a set of rules that are best practice, you know, pre, so they don't mix them, do this, makes good sense. And we try to, you know, we try to control the risk that we don't fully understand, you know, to, yeah. Now, Simply glycogen and um, and uh, spelling yeah. and that sort of thing, yeah. 
But we know down well that, you know, one old animal, a good car, the whole thing will get on the truck or the boat or whatever, and doesn't matter what you do to him, he'll be fine. Yeah. You know, bring him to the stale out and this other one, he'll do everything right, the bus will fizz up and or he's something else on the truck will fizz up and he'll he'll be horrible. Now would like to be able to pick that up at slaughter, say, look, we give you a set of recommendations, but do whatever you bloody like, but we can pick up by, you know, something at slaughter what the net result is. So it's yeah. you know, just like any other index we discount by so many points, you know. This now we've done a fair bit work with FLIR, which is you know looking at the eye, but out of that, you can get heart rate in the same camera looking at the nose, can you get respiration rate, we get temp, something something like we've looked at blood and haven't done much good, you know, lots of blood around at slaughter, you know, a litmus test type of thing would have potential, but something like that that let us just say, look, this is the impact of stress and get every animal right would just open up the supply side and a hell of a lot about compliance with. You know, best practices there, that's what you should do, but, you know, we actually just pray them all. That would be a giant step forward. And the genetic one is still out there, or genomics in particular, is that cost gets less, and we've got a very big trial running across USA, Ireland, and Australia at the minute, but unfortunately it's really only testing strip lines. So some of our Australian data's got multi-cuts, but that's a real question there. If we get a genomic indicator for eating quality, is it an eating quality only for a strip line or how do we develop and you know, what is it for every other muscle? I mean, if it, if that test was cheap enough and it could be applied across different muscles, you know, that would, could potentially be a big step forward okay. for the model. Yeah, great. Rod, look, just uh, uh, just before I uh, wind back and pass back to Kerry, I'd just like to, uh, you know, acknowledge you, yours and Judy's fantastic contribution to the genesis of MSA over the last 30-odd years. And um, it's been great just to sort of reflect on your on the progress of the system and your, you know, fantastic contribution to that. So on behalf of the industry, thank you for your yeah. efforts over the over the past uh, uh, three decades. So on the strength of that, yeah. I'll, pa- I'll pass back to Kerry and uh, let him um, finish uh, up. Yeah, thanks, particularly for recognising Judy's part. Yeah, no, no, thank, we really appreciate your efforts. Thanks and good to talk, Rod. I'll pass back to Kerry. Rod, we uh, have to wind this up, but I've got one question for you. You were in Ireland last year at a very important beef conference, as was Beef Central, and you were one of the architects of the Dublin Sustainability Declaration. I think I've got that right. What is the, what is the yeah, Dublin, what is the, what is the declaration? What does it mean? Well, the declaration really is a statement now by... Uh, and like 1,200-odd scientists that say animals are really important, you know, to the environment, or important generally to the, to the globe, you know, one for nutrition. It's almost impossible to get a really high-quality diet, particularly for, you know, young children, pregnant uh, females or young females and the elderly. It's almost impossible to get a decent diet without animal products, particularly beef and dairy. And then you get on to okay, well, but it's all going to ruin the climate. And the evidence is just so strong that you cannot fix the climate without the animals, particularly ruminants. Their role in actual, you know, soil, soil carbon type work. And, you know, the data coming out of Terry McCosker, RCS, is replicated in England by John, by John Gilland and in Zimbabwe, you know, in the US. You just see where the appropriate management. Cattle are, you know, really they replace herbivores that have been there for millions of years, and they're essential to build it. And uh, 
the other bit, that particularly in Europe, is, is the circularity argument. You know, if I have a, a vegan meal, the six times the weight of that floating around out there, some of it's waste, you know, leaves, stalks, stems, you know. So all the byproducts of the food industry, you know, Look at where we are in feedlot, you know, cotton seed, almond olives, and all these sort of products. Uh, if they don't go, they can go through a rumour and go from something that a human can't eat to being the highest quality food that exists for humans. Uh, and then we have the ethical side of, you know, it's fine to sit in New York or Sydney and, you know, sit there having your $10 coffee and waffle on about we should get rid of animals. Uh, you know, the two billion people that are going to be extra in Africa. That's a difference of life and death to them. You know, it's not some esoteric argument. And that is what they need to survive, and it is how they survive. You know, the only you got two hundred percent inflation. Uh, a cow is a pretty good thing to have, yeah. and it's better than money. Yeah. And that whole social thing. This is, you know, I milk that cow every morning, or I feed that chuck and collect the eggs. That is their survival, and their whole of these kids. You know, we've got a huge number, a million kids that have started. And that's not just stunted short, that's stunted in mental capacity. You know, all the rest of it comes from inadequate diet. And that all goes back to animal, I guess, background. And that we got interested when the UN Food System Summit was coming up. And some of the people in some of the leaders, like Frederick Loire and Pierre uh, Edra in Europe, were saying this is going to be a nightmare. You know, it's just been set up. So all the people running these committees on food are all animal activists, basically. Yeah, uh, you, know, you know, so we started going into it. So, what are the facts? And uh, Holly Cuthbert and Alex and I spent nine months, and with, and then Paul Wood and I set up a committee called ASAP, saying, "Well, what are the facts?" And we went off and collected well over a thousand papers, you know, and split them into that sort of. He's about human health and nutrition. He's about the environmental side. He's about the ethical side, and. Started off, we've got to say, a bit cautious, you know, are we really doing something nasty here or not? And the more you went, more bloody annoyed you got because the evidence is solid, you know, the strong science is just overwhelmingly positive, yeah. you know, on human health and nutrition, on, you know, like the fats, the whole original MSA thing, and all, they only want, they want anything with mouthing or external fat. Well, guess what the latest research is? Uh, animal fats, and particularly dairy fats, prolong life expectancy. And they're negative heart attacks and all these heart conditions. You know, they're actually preventative. Right. If it's 40 years of being kicked out of the head for, for, you know, saturated fats, it's the trans fats that did the damage. Outstandingly well said. (laughs) That's fantastic to listen to. Rod Polkinghorne, the father of the extraordinary creation of MSA Meat Standards Australia. Thank you so much for being on the grill for Beef Central. Pleasure. Thank you, Kerry. And thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan. This has been the Weekly Grill brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis.